Hello there, this is Mark Bauerline with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in crime and punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. Peter Wood is with us today. He's president of the National Association of Scholars. He's the editor-in-chief of the journal Academic Questions, uh, and he's the writer of the book Diversity, the Invention of a Concept. He has a new book out entitled 1620, A Critical Response to the 1619 Project. Welcome, Peter. Thank you for having me. Well, we've had you before. I think we had you two years ago to talk about uh, political correctness in higher education. This is turning a little more toward lower education with the 1619 Project. First of all, just tell us, what is the 1619 Project? It started as a special issue of the New York Times Magazine on August 18th, 2019. It was titled The 1619 Project. It was a 100-page uh, effort to reframe American history, focusing on the alleged arrival of slaves in Jamestown, Virginia in August of 1619. And from there, it uh, reinterpreted basically everything that's ever happened in America since as part of uh, white supremacy and the imposition of a slaveocracy on uh, people brought over from Africa. The first question, you raised this question early in the book, is, as you say, this is a massive historiographical project, a wholesale revision of the meaning of America and American history. Why would a newspaper take up this kind of project? Well, it's a, an odd thing in that it's not news. It's a, uh, as you say, historiography, an attempt to uh, rewrite what it means to have had a history as a nation. Uh, why did it do it? Well, among the reasons was a political one. The New York Times had been uh, pitching very hard for the Mueller investigation of President Trump's ties to Vladimir Putin. And when that uh, effort to smear Trump failed, uh, the Times held a kind of summit in the summer of uh, 2019 and decided to pivot to attacking Trump as a racist. And they had done some of that before then, but this was the point at which the New York Times decided that that was going to be its, in effect, campaign theme for the next year and a half. Uh, the 1619 Project was something that was already in the works. It had begun in January of uh, 2019, but now it was uh, put forward as the major dominating interpretive device of uh, the times for the coming year. So there was that. Um, of course, there were other things going on as well. The times itself was in the midst of 
uh, racial turmoil in its own newsroom, and there were battles going back and forth over uh, how it should position itself with regard to Black Lives Matter and uh, other racial discontents in the country. So the 1619 Project was a kind of uh, victory cry by one faction within the Times. Those are two of the reasons why this happened. Right. When you look at the actual historiographical material, one thing that you draw out is how the Times characterizes slavery in America relative to slavery broadly in history and in the rest of the world. How does it make American slavery appear relative to slavery in general? Well, there's hardly anything in it that refers to slavery in the rest of the world, slavery throughout history, slavery in other parts of uh, the old world or the new world. The impression that it gives to a lot of readers is that slavery was uniquely an American institution, that it was begun here and maybe spread elsewhere. Of course, that couldn't be more wrong in that slavery was well nigh a universal institution in human life found among peoples all across the world, all through prehistory and recorded history. And in the Americas, uh, the what became the United States was among the very last places to uh, become admired in slavery. The Portuguese and the Spanish had been importing slaves from West Africa uh, early in the 16th century. Uh, slaves had been brought to what is now continental United States in Florida and Georgia uh, about a hundred years before the episode in Jamestown, when slavery did eventually take off, which was much later in the uh, 17th century, the uh, uh, America became uh, the destination for a very small fraction of the slaves that were being brought to Brazil, Mexico, and the Caribbean, uh, and it remained so. This was just not uh, one of the great slavery places on the globe even when slavery was at its maximum in uh, the 19th century. So uh, all of that is a very misleading thing on the part of the New York Times. Uh, if one wants to understand slavery, and I think it's really an important part of history and should be understood, it's crucial that you get the facts right. The odd thing about the New York Times' 1619 project is how uh, drastically it gets just even the basic facts wrong. Uh, it's titled the 1619 Project, for example, on the claim that this is when slavery began in what would become the United States. Well, I mentioned slaves had already been here a century earlier, but as far as the English colonists go, uh, 1619 is notable mainly as the year in which the uh, uh, House of Burgesses, the first legislative body in the English colonies, was created. And oh, by the way, in August of 1619, an English pirate ship, having raided a Spanish convoy in the Caribbean and captured slaves, had sold most of them uh, in Bermuda, had 20-some left over, put into port near Jamestown. They were in a bad way, and they needed to trade uh, their captives for food. 
they reached an agreement with some of the people in Jamestown. The issue, however, gets complicated by Jamestown not having a status of slaves. They did have a status for indentured servants, and there were uh, Englishmen serving as indentured servants there at the time. So as soon as these African captives uh, stepped off the, the pirate ship, the White Lion, the name of the ship, they were no longer slaves. They were indentured servants. Uh, they were placed with various uh, English families. And within a few years, as happens with indentured servants, they'd served their terms. They were set free. Uh, and we know what happened to some of them. They became uh, landowners. They intermarried with the white population. We have court records of uh, at least one family that went to uh, law against a neighboring white family and prevailed, which is a strong indication that they had full civil rights. So 1619 represents, as far as race goes, an early and odd kind of experiment with racial integration. It was not the beginning of slavery. <laughs> uh, that's not to say that those uh, captives on board the White Lion uh, had a nice time of it. They were ripped from their homes in Angola and brought across the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, but compared to the others on board the uh, convoy of Spanish ships bringing slaves to the New World, the 20-some that came to Jamestown were extremely fortunate. Uh, they won their freedom eventually and in some cases became quite prosperous. Hmm. You know, you mentioned the absence of discussions of broader slavery around the world and in history. And I have to say, I, I teach classes. I, I have taught slave narratives before. And it is true that students at a good school, like where, where I taught, uh, they've never heard of the Arab slave trade. They didn't know that the South American slave trade dwarfed the American slave trade. The slave trade. In the colonies, it's like a surprise to them. Slavery is a common condition in, in all of human history until very recently in the general human story. Why not bring that out? Is it because that that would, in their eyes, that that would mitigate the guilt of America? Well, it's a good guess that that's really what um, Nicole Hannah-Jones, the principal editor and author of the 1619 Project, would like to achieve. She does not say this in the original report, but shortly after it was published, she began saying that her goal in the 1619 project was to prepare America to pay racial reparations. Now, having Americans agree to pay reparations to the descendants of uh, black slaves would be a weaker case if it were faced with the reality that Brazil, Mexico, Bermuda, Jamaica, uh, you name the place in the New World, uh, was more deeply implicated in slavery than North America was. Uh, it also creates the problem that uh, uh, Arab slavery continues in some parts of the world. Mauritania is often mentioned as still having black slaves. Uh, the abolition of slavery over the course of all humanity is greatly to be wished and celebrated where it has been achieved. 
Uh, but if we want to focus America's attention on the uh, the deep guilt, the, the, as uh, Jones puts it, it's in the DNA of the country, then it helps to be distracted from the fact that slavery was nearly a universal institution. You know, you, you make a frightening statement on page 38 when you say of the times, after recounting some of the facts that you just recounted, you say, quote, they don't seem to care whether their facts are correct. Well, we know that because within uh, weeks and certainly within a few months of the publication of this, many of the nation's leading historians of uh, the American founding, the antebellum South, the Civil War period, and uh, Reconstruction were coming forward with uh, strong, carefully worded statements sent to the New York Times saying, uh, essentially, we endorse the idea of a broader project examining the history of uh, slavery and racial oppression in the United States, but you've got a few things wrong and you need to fix them. The initial response to those complaints was total silence. The Times didn't even bother to acknowledge that it was receiving letters from uh, leading scholars in the United States and around the world taking issue with what the uh, project said. Eventually, uh, Jake Silverstein, another one of the editors at the Times who was involved with the project, uh, did respond in a rather perfunctory manner saying, no, we're not making any changes. Um, not that uh, we were right and you're wrong, but no, we're not making any changes. You know, it's something that is hard to understand, then, which is, how would a an organization with all the resources that the Times has, why, why wouldn't they do a little fact-checking? I mean, at least get some of those facts fixed that would still allow you to continue the ideological project uh, taking place here, but why not just have someone go through and protect yourself from just basic correction by the historians? Were they just too swept away by the, by the goals? The mission? Well, it's a puzzling question. As it happens, we know that the Times did do some fact-checking. Uh, we know this because one of the fact-checkers, uh, a, a woman named uh, uh, Leslie Harris, a professor of history at uh, Northwestern, I believe, uh, came forward some eight months after the initial publication to tell Politico that, yes, I was a fact-checker. We don't know if she was the only one. Uh, and I told the Times that the, the uh, story that Nicole Hannah-Jones had written was factually incorrect on the thesis that the American Revolution was fought in order to protect the institution of slavery from a threat that the crown might abolish slavery in the colonies. Uh, that didn't happen, said Harris. I told the Times that it didn't happen. And then I was astonished when the report came out that uh, the correction had not been made. Well, she kept her mouth shut for a good long time, yeah. knowing that this report was false. Uh, I suppose that was an act of 
racial solidarity. Harris is black. Nicole Hennon-Jones is black. She didn't want to embarrass the uh, authors of the report, almost all of whom are black. Uh, so at some point, however, her professional integrity got in the way of her racial solidarity, and she brought this forward. It was at that point, and only at that point, that the New York Times decided that a correction was in order. Mm. The correction they made was de minimis. They added two words to the uh, original statements that Nicole Hannah-Jones made. Instead of saying that uh, the colonists uh, were fighting the re revolution in order to protect slavery, they added some of the colonists were doing this. Mm. Now, that still is an historical inaccuracy of some significance because there are no records of any sort showing that any colonists uh, fighting in the American Revolution thought that there was a imminent prospect that the British were going to abolish slavery in the colonies. Um, that has now been subject to uh, still greater scrutiny by the chief historians of that era, and no one has been able to find a single instance of, say, a contemporaneous letter written by uh, an American saying we need to fight the revolution for this reason or by a, a newspaper editorial saying something like that mm -hmm. or by the minute takers at the uh, 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 various conventions that had been held in America during the period. No one got the idea that we should fight the American Revolution to protect the institution of slavery. And yet here we have our nation's so-called newspaper of record uh, standing by that claim. Hmm. Um, so now I can go into more complications on that. Well, no, they, and the book kind of does contain uh, a wealth of historical material. You go into things such as the nature of slavery. It was a much more complicated phenomenon than people think of what you said about the indentured servants. For, for instance, it was a kind of servitude. It was temporary. Usually, what, seven years? Yes. Uh, usually. And that there was, there was just a much more fluid relationship going on with, with, uh, with, with master-slave relations in, in those times. But that, that requires, you know, that, that kind of examination really requires a lot of objectivity. And we just didn't have it here. It, it, didn't, suit, it didn't suit the mission. What kind of publicity campaign did the Times attach to the project? Uh, past tense, I don't think is appropriate. The publicity <laughs> campaign continues. Yeah. Uh, the last page of the 100-page uh, New York Times magazine was an advertisement from the Pulitzer Center saying that they had uh, been working with the Times to roll out a curriculum to the nation's schools based on the 1619 project. They'd begun work on that before the publication. So by the time it was out, they already had lined up a considerable number of American teachers in public schools to support this. In the weeks and months that followed, they succeeded in uh, convincing several prominent school districts, uh, Chicago Public Schools, Buffalo Public Schools, among them, to endorse this. Uh, the Pulitzer Center has continued this work. 
Uh, just recently, I believe it was a public school district in Phoenix, Arizona, that has now gotten on board with this. Uh, so they, they're pursuing it in the schools through two avenues. One is recruiting individual teachers, regardless of what the school districts may be doing, and then recruiting whole districts. When I call it a curriculum, I should be clear that what, what the Times is offering is uh, lesson plans based on the 1619 project. So it's mm -hmm. not the entire course of American history it consists of simply reading the Times as a uh, supplement, but uh, it becomes a important piece of how history is taught to have this piece of it uh, integrated with whatever else is being taught. Now that's uh, on the schools. The Times is not content, however, simply to bring this into schools. Uh, it ran a first ever television advertisement in the New York Times history, a very expensive 60-second uh, spot uh, in which uh, parts of the 1619 Project are recited against a, a shoreline with a beautiful actress and uh, uh, very uh, artfully done music. Uh, and this was presented during, I believe, the Super Bowl and uh, several other events in February of uh, 2020. Um, the Times continued to run full-page ads, sometimes two full pages, an issue in the Times itself promoting the 1619 Project. Uh, uh, the, it is now engaged in offering uh, fellowships to teachers who will adopt this and uh, try to recruit still other people to support it. Uh, it has become a target of fascination by American textbook publishers. So it remains, I would say, predominantly an educational effort, but it has uh, certainly spilled beyond that to a, uh, a crowd-pleasing uh, political project. Nicole Hannah-Jones and several others involved with this have been on tour across the country giving lectures to large audiences. Uh, they do not uh, engage in debate on these matters, so it's only a positive, adoring, supportive audiences that get to hear this stuff, but it has become a organizing point within uh, the black community, but not just the black community in the U.S. It has one other aspect to it, which I'm a little bit hesitant to attribute to the Times, but it certainly can be attributed to Nicole Hannah-Jones. That is, uh, after the uh, riots broke out in American cities following the death in police custody of George Floyd in Minneapolis at the end of May of 2020, um, one critic observed that the riots could be called the 1619 riots. Nicole Hannah-Jones embraced that on her Twitter account and said, yes, that's what they are. Uh, that caught on when we were looking at photographs of uh, toppled monuments around the country. Many of them were spray-painted 1619. So 1619 became the tag used by rioters destroying public property and attacking uh, so-called white history. And Nicole Hannah-Jones became a fervent supporter of uh, that. 
So can that be attributed to the Times? I don't know that it directly can, but I didn't see the New York Times trying to restrain the use of its uh, uh, brand and marketing label uh, to be a justification for public disorder and violence. I, I regard the riots of last summer as a great political success for the left. Right. <laughs> I, th I think I think they did what they were uh, what they were designed to do. A uh, quick question on on Hannah Jones and what is the relationship between the Pulitzer Center and the Pulitzer Prizes? Uh, they're distinct. The Pulitzer Center is a body that has only the Pulitzer name. The prizes are actually given by Columbia University. And there is a uh, committee at Columbia that chooses who should get the prizes. Uh, it's relevant to this discussion as well because uh, last year the Pulitzer Committee at Columbia chose to give Nicole Hannah-Jones a Pulitzer Prize for her contributions to the 1619 Project. Uh -huh. But that's not the Pulitzer Center. That's separate. You've got a term later on in the book. You call it postmodern post-history. <laughs> what is that? Is this what we have here? Is this what this is your label for this kind of project? Yes, uh, postmodern. I don't think requires too much of a gloss here, but postmodernism uh, doubts that there is any such thing as objectivity or uh, the pursuit of truth. We all have many different truths contradictions and holes and lapses and apora and such uh, gaps exist in knowledge that we should settle the fact that history is just a matter of interpretation. In fact, uh, anything we might know is more rooted in interpretation than in actual knowledge of reality. Uh, Post-history consists of the idea that uh, history is far from being any kind of record of what actually happened or what matters of greater significance uh, bear on what later happened. Uh, instead, post-history becomes, again, I'll use the Times' its own word, a narrative. That is, we simply tell a story, and whether that story is factual or true or well-supported by the available evidence uh, doesn't matter. What matters is that this narrative be uh, thrilling, convincing, useful, uh, that it presents to an audience an account of things that that audience wants to hear and that might uh, serve to motivate its members to uh, take action in a particular path. So once we've gotten rid of the inconvenient task of trying to sift from all of the fragments and contradictions of the evidence, what actually happened, what we have is simply the delights of uh, inventing an account that pleases us, postmodern, post-history. As 1619 and various anti-racism uh, programs enter into the schools and sort of take over civics and history education, uh, do you think that, do you think the reparations movement will gather steam? Yes, I think the reparations movement is gathering steam. Uh, some 20 years ago when I had published uh, my book, Diversity, the Invention of the Concept, and 
was doing a lot of radio interviews at the time. Um, I recall being interviewed at a black radio station in, I think it was Miami, uh, and being asked whether I thought reparations was a coming thing in American society. And I was incredulous. I did not believe at that point that there would ever be a time in America when uh, our representatives in Congress, Senate, would see fit to devote some major diversion of American wealth into paying money to the descendants of people who had been enslaved a, um, a long time ago. Um, that there is now an active movement to do just that is unmistakable. That uh, uh, whether it will actually happen, I, I won't uh, guess, but to say that it now has some political traction, I think is accurate. Yeah. Has the Biden administration sent any signals of support, involvement that you've seen? For, or too early, or it's awful early. For reparations? Uh, or, or for probably nothing for 1619, although I've got to imagine that the Department of Education will be trying to funnel money into programs that, that support programs similar to the 1619 project. Well, the Biden administration has already done one, I'd say, very significant pro-1619 project action. On uh, Inauguration Day, uh, President uh, Biden canceled the 1776 uh, commission right. uh, and took its uh, report that had been issued just two days earlier down from the White House website well, this requires a moment of explanation. In September of uh, 2020, uh, President Trump held a event at the National Archives. I was there, in which he announced that uh, he was going to be pushing back against the 177. I'm sorry, the 1619 project. And to that end was going to create this um, 1776 commission that was going to look for ways to teach a true and accurate American history. Uh, he did not get around to appointing the members of that commission until December. And then they worked at breakneck speed to produce a, uh, a kind of preface to their larger work, which called for a refocusing of uh, teaching American history on the American founding. Um, it was a statement which viewed through the glasses of uh, any time in the last century of America would have been entirely uncontroversial. It was a straightforward account that the uh, creating of our Declaration of Independence and the uh, Constitution were events worthy of our close attention. Uh, and yet, uh, because that cuts against the theme of the 1619 Project, which treats those things merely as instruments of white supremacy, uh, they had to be taken down and removed. Well, of course, Biden partly was trying to do whatever symbolic gestures he could to uh, repudiate Trump and everything mm -hmm. connected to Trump. 
but one of the very first steps to doing that was to uh, elevate the integrity of the 1619 project and uh, tear down the curriculum that was notionally face, based on the American founding. Right. Well, we'll see. We'll see what happens. The book is 1620, a critical response to the 1619 project. Peter Wood, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.